0: Good morning. It's lovely to be back here with you finally after a month away. This is not technically my first Sunday back. Last Sunday, my family and I and the team were around, but on the way home from uh, running camps for Cree teenagers, which we were doing for a month, uh, our whole team contracted a flu virus. (laughs) So last Sunday, we were kind of white, right out as a family, and uh, it was not great, but it was an excuse to crash a little bit and to recover, and I'm happy to say that a week later, we're feeling good, and, uh, and it's really nice to be here and be able to join you in worship again uh, for the first time in a while. We had a fantastic time up north. We really did. Um, Shoshana and Ali were there with me the whole month, and there was kind of a core team that was there with me as well, and then we had other people come in for two-week commitments in two different communities, two weeks in Nemska, two weeks in Mistisney. each of them being preteen and teen camps. All said and done, I think we had probably close to 30 different leaders involved in those four weeks, and we had, uh, I think, around 100 different preteen and teenager campers uh, through those four weeks, and it was a pretty awesome time to see them growing, uh, enjoying themselves, building relationships with our leaders, and by far the most exciting moment of the entire summer, I think, uh, was a moment when six people were baptized. So Alex, I'd like you to show the picture of the girls that were baptized, and that was the kind of closing day that we had at the camp was, was six baptisms, uh, which is the first time we've done that up there. So yeah, thank you all for supporting the ministry, and yeah, give a hand to that. I was, I was looking around to try and see how many people from the team were here this morning. I think John may be the only one. <laughs> is there anybody else from the team right now? No, I know Natalie Mackey is probably downstairs helping with kids ministry or something like that, and, and, or, or off at Joy helping with things. And, and Rochelle is off on her way to uh, Peru, I believe, at this point in time. And, uh, and a number of the, of the other team members are uh, spread out across Peterborough, Ottawa, Toronto area. Uh, but uh, really awesome to be part of that ministry and to see so many, uh, so many Cree uh, teenagers and pre coming to know God's love a little bit more. So thank you all for praying, for supporting it financially, and, uh, and, and for encouraging us as we were up there. We got a lot of lovely emails and, uh, and uh, Facebook messages just saying how much uh, people were, were praying for us and how excited they were about what we were doing. As we were up there, one of the themes that we talked about a lot was uh, learning to trust in God's character. And, uh, and uh, all of the songs this morning have really hit on that theme already. Uh, Mike and I didn't even have a chance to plan together about what the songs would be, but loving seeing that. And uh, I think it's funny that he mentioned doing an entire, an entire uh, book of the Bible in one stretch, because that's actually what we're going to be doing here today as well. Uh, it's just not going to be Exodus, which is uh, 40 chapters. It's going to be Ruth, which is four. So <laughs> a little, little easier of an undertaking, but I, I, I love the story of Ruth. Uh, and we've been doing stories over the course of the summer thus far from the Bible and looking at the way that they can inspire us and encourage us in our own walks. And, and the story of Ruth is one of those stories that is so subtle and so beautiful uh, and has great power just for us to learn in our day to day walk. Um, and so I thought we would dive in and take a look at that this morning. And, uh, and I was encouraged by how the campers received it, and I, I really think that uh, uh, it's going to be a, a wonderful encouragement for us here this morning. Let's pray, and then we'll start it on the book. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us here this morning. Thank you that you love us as a good and perfect Father, and uh, and that you are faithful to us. Um, and I pray that as we look at the story of Ruth, uh, thousands of years after it was written, that it would be a, an encouragement to those of us here today, and uh, and that we would be encouraged yet again to look at your character and your love for your people because we know you are you are faithful to the end in Jesus name I pray amen the book of ruth starts out in a pretty bleak way it says in the days when the judges ruled there was a famine in the land and a man of bethlehem in judah went to sojourn in the country of moab he and his wife and his two sons the name of the man was elimelech and the name of his wife naomi And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives, and the name of the one was Orpah and the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. For those of us reading 3,000 years later, the opening sentence might not seem very drastic. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and they left the land to go into Moab. What we might miss in that simple statement is the fact that in doing so, Elimelech was actually failing to trust in God's promises, that any of the readers in his day would have known that God had instructed his people, remain in the land, if you stay faithful and you trust in me, I will provide for you. And by fleeing the land, when this famine was hitting, Elimelech was showing he wasn't really trusting those promises that God had given. And so here he is in a far-off land, one that God has actually condemned and said that the Israelites should be resisting and fighting against. And I'm sure that Naomi, his wife, feels like what comes next is a judgment on her, on Elimelech, and on the whole family for their lack of faith. First, he dies. We don't know how, we just know that he dies, and what they're left with is Naomi and her sons. The two of them marry off into families from the Moabites, which again is a forbidden thing. This is something that they were told not to do, to intermix racially, because they were supposed to try and keep the the race pure, and to be able to um, stand as God's chosen people on his promises again. If you trust in me and don't give yourselves over to these other people who worship other gods and are acting in ways that aren't like me, then you'll be safe in my promises. And so again, the two sons die, and Naomi is left alone. Here in this moment, it's pretty clear she's probably thinking, we have violated a lot of God's commandments, and he has punished us. He has let all of those decisions come home to roost, and here we are, abandoned in a foreign land, with no hope, no males in our bloodline to carry on our name, no people to work the fields. We're probably going to die here. It's a sad start to a story. Made even sadder, perhaps, by the fact that we know, back in Israel, there's a lot of ugly things going on which is what we're being told when we're told that this is taking place in the Day of the Judges. If you've ever read the book of Judges, it's a pretty ugly book. Lots of really bad things happen in it. Now this is a position I think we want to camp out on a little bit just to recognize this is not really unfamiliar territory for a lot of us here. The story of Naomi is one that a lot of us can relate to, of being in a position where we feel like God either isn't there with us, isn't living up to his promises, or even worse, like maybe he has abandoned us because we've done something wrong. I work in ministry with a lot of people who are in hard times, and one of the most common questions that comes up is this very question. Is God just punishing me? Is that what's going on here? Am I just facing his wrath because of the fact that I've done something wrong? And the rest of the story as it unfolds is really a counter to that way of thinking. It's a reminder that God in his character is loving and faithful to his people even if they don't deserve it. And it starts out with one person, a person who will be an incredibly important part of this story as Naomi's journey unfolds. It says Naomi arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the country of Moab from the country of Moab. For she had heard, she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and had given them food. So here's our first glimpse of hope. Wait a minute. Here I am, stranded, alone, and Naomi hears that God has brought food to his people, and she thinks, maybe, maybe I can just return there. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go! Return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in your house of your husband. And as she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept, they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say that I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after her. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. May the Lord do to me and more also. If anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. We see at this stage in Naomi's journey that she's still not ready to hold on to hope. She's still feeling like God has abandoned her and she has probably deserved that abandonment. And we see that in the fact that she actually tells people to call her bitter. How's that for a rough spot? When you you turn around to the people next to you and you say, don't even call me by my name anymore, just call me bitter. Because that's, that's how I feel right now. I just feel bitter about everything that I'm facing. As we go through this journey, I think the things that she says about God really indicate where her heart's at. And here we have a pretty heavy statement about the Lord. She says, I went away full. I had a full family. I was going off to a land full of food. And it said, the Lord has brought me back empty. So she says, Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Right now she's pointing the finger at God and saying, God is the one who is against me. He's judged me, he's found me wanting, and he's bringing judgment upon me right now. So I'm bitter. But even as she says those things, I think the author is playing with our emotions. We're hearing the heaviness in Naomi's voice, but at the same time, we hear that Ruth is with her in a special way. In fact, it's really quite an incredible way when you stop and think about it. Ruth's response in this situation is really, really counterintuitive. We have this statement that she gives to Naomi. She says, Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do, to me, uh, do to, so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. This is a covenant statement that she makes to Naomi. And at first we can breeze over it. In fact, a lot of the time we take these words and we kind of take them and apply them to ourselves. We apply them in songs. We're kind of, where you go, I'll go. I'll follow you anywhere, God. But remember, this is the context for her making this statement. She has just watched this woman's life be destroyed. She has spent 10 years with her, and over the course of those 10 years, Naomi has lost everything. Now, maybe Naomi has been a wonderful mother-in-law, and that might explain why it is that she's willing to say, where you go, I'll go. It's clear that even Orpah, as she leaves her mother-in-law, is sad to do so, so obviously Naomi was somebody important to them. But the part that I find most strange about this is the fact that she looks and she says, your God is going to be my God. Really? This God that Naomi is blaming for all of her circumstances, this this God who isn't right now blessing this woman, this is the God that you would choose as your own God? Why not choose a God that seems to be blessing the people around? Why 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 not choose a God who seems to be a lot happier with life? This seems like an angry God, a vengeful God. And yet Ruth seems to look beyond the immediate circumstances that she's seeing in Naomi's life. Maybe she's been able to read a little bit of the stories that Naomi's people have about this God. The God who rescued his people from slavery. The God who, who loved them enough to give them a land of their own even though they had no place in the world. A God who loved them enough to guide them into righteousness so that they could thrive. And she compares that to the gods in her own culture. And she sees that the gods in her own culture are gods who demand sacrifice and gods who say, you need to serve me or else I'm not going to bless you. And she sees the promises God gives over and over and over again that he will be faithful no matter what. And she says, you know what? I can't explain the present circumstances. But what I know is the character of your God is something different in this world. And I want that. I'm willing to cling to hope even if you're not willing to. Now, Ruth's faith is pretty incredible. We can learn a lot from Ruth's faith alone in this story. But I really don't want to leave too much behind Naomi's story. Because after having heard all of this, she's still bitter. She's still hurting. And she's not condemned for that in this story. She's lost a lot, and she's feeling those wounds pretty heavily. But the one encouragement that I think we can really get from Naomi's story at this point in time is the fact that God proves faithful often by putting people in our lives. Quite simply. That a lot of the time, the the simple mercy that he gives us is to put one or two other people who haven't lost hope there in our story with us. And that they're able to see God's character clearly, even as we're struggling to do so. And so we can have hope for her and for ourselves And we can see that illustrated in the simple fact that she's returning to Bethlehem at the time of the harvest. There's kind of this foreshadowing going on. Here's Ruth returning with her, and they're returning at a time when the harvest is coming. Hope is just around the corner. Maybe the biggest irony in all of this is that she says, I went away full and I came back empty. But we as the audience are able to see, now you're not quite empty yet. There's still something left. Her name is Ruth. So then the story progresses. I'm not going to walk through every single verse in this. But what happens next is the author tells us there's a man who's a relative of theirs, and he's well off. And he's running a good business in the land. Right now, that harvest that's starting to come in, he's, he's at the forefront of it. He's making a lot of money, and his workers are out working the field. And we're told Ruth does what beggars of their time would have done, which is to go out and to enter into the fields and to look for the last little bits of scrap that people have left over as they're working the fields. It's not an easy task. It's probably hot and sweaty. Something that trying to gather up as much weed as you can from these scraps into your arms probably don't have a lot of tools or equipment for doing it. But it's something that Ruth throws herself into to care for her mother-in-law. And she goes out into this field, and the author actually says, and it just so happened that the field that she came across was their relatives, this man Boaz. Again, as an audience, we're kind of chuckling to ourselves a little. Yes, it just so happens. It just so happens that we know God is really the one who's pointing her in this direction. And when she ends up in this field, Boaz immediately sees this woman and respects her for what he's heard of her, and so he begins to show her unexpected favor. First of all, he talks to the men in the field, and he says, don't you dare lay a hand on this woman. Make sure that they're looking out for her and protecting her from anybody who would take advantage of her. Then he approaches her, and he says, I want you to know, I've already made this a safe space for you, so I want you to stick around, to stay here and to, f- to work in this field alone so that you're not ever in any sort of danger. Then he actually talks to his workers again and he says, hey, while she's working this, I want you to do something. As you're, as you're going around and gathering up all of the wheat, I want you to leave some for her and not, not, not actually begrudge her that. And in fact, every once in a while, I want you to drop a little bit of extra behind you. Can you imagine Ruth's reaction the first time that she's walking behind these men, and here they are, they're big, burly guys, and they're sweeping up, using their sickles to cut it up and gathering it up into these big bundles, tying them, and then suddenly, boom! This big pile of good grain falls behind them. And as the man is walking away, what reaction is Ruth having? Maybe she's wanting to go, hey, wait, 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 you forgot something. But then another part of her is going, can I really, maybe I can just take that. He's not turning around, oh, oh. And so she takes it. And then it happens again. And then it happens again. And so by the time she goes home to Naomi, she's thrilled at the great return that she's getting in this field, completely unknowing that this is something that's deliberate. And she returns to Naomi. And Naomi, too, gets excited. What's going on? This is great. Where are you getting all of this? She says. And then Ruth says, Oh, it's this guy named Boaz. He's the one whose field I'm working in. We're getting all of this from him. And Naomi, being more aware of the family connections and the social relationships, immediately catches on and goes, Ah! Ah! This man, this is not just another person. This is someone from God. This guy is one of our relatives, and he actually has the ability to save us from our circumstances. And here she again makes a statement about God. Here, these few weeks or days later, when she's beginning to see God's hand at work, she says, May he, this being Boaz, may he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. The Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. In other words, she's realizing, wait a minute, in the midst of all of this, God hasn't actually abandoned me. He hasn't actually abandoned my husband. He hasn't heaped judgment on us for the decisions that he made. God hasn't actually abandoned us the way that I thought at all. And this, I think, really is at the heart of the character of the God that we serve. This simple statement that that God has not forsaken the living or the dead is one of the most prolific promises that Scripture gives us, that the Lord is faithful. Again, a simple truth. It really is the main point of the story, and we're going to come back to it over and over and over again. But the truth is, God doesn't abandon his people. Period. No qualifiers. Living or dead, God's love endures. And Naomi is just starting to catch a glimpse of it. But how does this faithfulness play out? What are the actual results of it? The story continues on. Naomi begins to try and figure out what role can this guy play in our story? And she comes up with the answer that I think, I think, maybe, he can actually be the one who can save us from these circumstances entirely. What comes to pass is a little bit obscure. I don't think any scholar really knows fully what it is that's going on in these next couple chapters. It begins with a set of laws that the Israelites had. Laws that were meant to prevent any family from dying off altogether. The goal was that no family would die off and lose their land entirely. What's that? Yeah? I, uh, yeah? I love it when kids are in the service, but we saw a little bit of that up north. <laughs> so so we, we have this situation. There's a lot of laws that the Israelites are given to ensure that no family line dies off altogether, and they're called Redeemer laws. And the idea is that if a, if a family is in a position where they've been sold into slavery or the last heir of the family has died off and they're in a position where they can't continue on with the land, a close relative is able to marry one of the women in that family and have children with her and then that child becomes the inheritor of the land and shares in the inheritance of the person that's been married into the family. And so it's, it's kind of a complex set of rules. Um, but... Naomi realizes that Boaz is somebody who is able to do that. That if he marries Ruth, he's able to take her to redeem the land that Elimelech had in the first place and is able to involve her family now in his line so that their family won't die off. And this is very important in ancient cultures, that your family die off. It's, it's, It's even more important than your own individual survival. And so then she tells her to do something that, again, I don't know if we understand fully. She tells her to go find Boaz after he's done a full day's work and and he's had some nice wine or beer to kind of make him merry, she says, when he falls asleep, go to him, uncover his feet, and lie down at his feet. Then he's going to wake up and he's going to tell you what it is that he wants you to do. Now, some people think that this is supposed to be some sort of seduction maneuver, that Ruth is trying to get him to sleep with her. Other people are skeptical of that because there's no sense that God is condemning her actions in this case. Whatever it is, when he does find her there, he's a little bit surprised, but he recognizes immediately that what she's doing is offering herself to him. Not in an immediate sexual sense, but in the sense of wanting to marry him. She even says to him, I want you to stretch out your wings over top of me and to be my protector. It is a very sensual image, whether or not it's meant to be a sexual one. One of this man who's a little older, probably bigger and stronger than she is, wrapping out his arms in protection and covering her up physically, but also spiritually and emotionally, to be the one to step in and to rescue her from her circumstances. And he lauds her for the decision. He says, good for you for not... Chasing after younger men who couldn't provide for you properly. The fact that you chose me is actually a very respectable decision. And he says to her, I will look after this. I will see if I can redeem the land the way that you're asking me to do. Now, there's one hitch in the plan. Naomi doesn't realize, apparently, that there's actually a family member who's a little bit closer in line. And the Redeemer laws say that they have to have first right To buy that land and to marry the family. So the last chapter of Ruth involves Boaz coming and bartering with this man, and at first it looks like this other person is going to be the one who buys the land. But then it's revealed, Ruth is still here, that if this other person buys the land, he also has to actually marry Ruth and make an heir with her, and that that heir will become part of the family line. And this other guy backs away. He says, wait a minute that would actually compromise my ability to pass on my inheritance to my own children. I'm not able to do that. And so we're left with Boaz being willing to incorporate Ruth into his family, to have a child with her, and to make Naomi's grandson into his heir. It's something that's actually costly to him. We don't know if he had other wives, other children, either from existing marriages or previous marriages of wives who are lost. We really don't know what his circumstances are, but we know what he's doing is he's giving up some of his family line's inheritance and giving it to Naomi's family line instead. And in so doing, he's costing himself something. But he's willing to incur that because of the fact that he's seen Ruth's character and he's seen her being a blessing to Naomi and he wants to be part of that story. And so the closing scene of the entire book is a scene where Boaz takes Ruth as his wife. She gets pregnant. They have a child. And the whole community celebrates the fact that Naomi now has an heir. She has, as it were, a son who's going to carry on the name of the family. And we have this final statement. It says the women are talking to Naomi in the community and they say, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Contrast this with the statements made about God at the beginning of the book. At the beginning of the book, Naomi is saying, I'm bitter against God. He is a judge. He has found me wanting. He's bringing upon calamity. And instead, we have this contrasting statement that the Lord didn't leave you without the hope that you needed, that he, he left you with a redeemer. We want his name to be celebrated everywhere, not treated with bitterness. He'll be to you a restorer of life, a nourisher for your old age. And then there's this acknowledgement that through it all, the, the thing that God did more than anything else was to give Naomi Ruth. And it says that her daughter-in-law loves her and is more than seven sons. In other words, having had this one person in her life was greater than having had seven good heirs to pass on the family line. That's how good God has been in this circumstance. This is high praise. But you know what? The funny part is, it's not actually high enough. This is the last scene of the story, but the book actually closes with a genealogy. We're told that the generations of Perez, Boaz's great-grandfather, Perez fathered Hezron, and Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amminadab. Aminadab Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. This is where the author lands us. is that even in this moment, in this moment when they're seeing how good God is and seeing that He has worked great things in Naomi's story, isn't enough. It misses the big picture. There's something more going on here, because it's through this act that King David himself is to be born. Naomi doesn't know it yet, but she has just been part of the lineage of the greatest king Israel will ever have. And more than that, when we turn to the pages of the New Testament, we see, of course, that David is actually the ancestor of Jesus. And that here now, Naomi and Ruth, they get to be part of the line of the Messiah himself. That the one who will come and who will redeem his people at his own expense in a much greater way than Boaz has redeemed Ruth and Naomi, in this case, is going to come through this line, this line that should have died. It was done. There was no hope left. And yet it became part of the greatest story ever, the story of the redemption of the world. In four short chapters, we've gone from having a woman with nothing to a woman who gets to be part of the Messiah's lineage. So if there's a final lesson that we can learn from Naomi's story is that we don't even know what God will make of our story. He can take it and he can work things beyond our wildest imagination. That this God who is faithful, this God who shows up in little ways in our story is a God who can take it and work far greater things than would have been otherwise. That all of the things that we lose aren't even worth comparing to the glory that we will receive, which is the way that Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians. Now, that's not to say that each of us will be an ancestor of the Messiah. In fact, I can pretty much guarantee that's not going to be true. When when my my mentor Paul spoke on this passage, he asked a question. He said, how many of you expect that your story will be told 3,000 years from now? And he meant it as a question to show the amazing scale of what God had done. He had taken this woman whose story was gone, and had made it into a story that dozens of generations later were still talking about. I think it was a good point. It does show the amazing scale of what God worked in Naomi's life. But as I was thinking about that question, I realized something. And that's that even if not all of us will have stories that end up being recognized on that level in this life, in this world, the truth is there will be people talking about you 3,000 years from now. That if you're willing to walk with God and you're willing to invest in the people around you, those people who are eternal will be talking about you. I I truly believe that because Christ assures us eternal life, that thousands of years from now, our impact in this world will still be something that is being acknowledged. It might be great things, things that we can't even anticipate in a worldly sense, it might just be one or two people who you get to be the hope in their story. Maybe you get to be the Ruth instead of the Naomi. But whatever it is, God can take that and multiply it, and he will use it to impact the lives of people who will never die and who will be able to continue talking about and thanking you for that. I don't say that to be selfish or to try and encourage us to you know, be motivated by glory but I think it's a pretty amazing idea to think the actions we do here and now last they matter and that if we can take these lessons from Naomi's story and trust in the God who is faithful and look for him to work in our story we can hold on to hope even if right now we might be feeling a little bitter Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your faithfulness, for your love, for for the fact that you are our Redeemer who can make things that we can't even imagine out of our stories and lives. I do ask that we would hold on to that wherever we're at, whether we're in good circumstances or bad, and that we would not lose the need to hope in you, our one true Redeemer.